0: Daniel, God bless us. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Eric O'Connell. I'm the high school youth director here, and Pastor Ron is on a much deserved, much needed vacation. So uh, I get the opportunity to preach this morning, or if you want to look at it as you're stuck with me, that's fine too. Um, before we get started, uh, we want to introduce you guys to a very special new member of our family here our staff at Hillside, and Jamie and I's new roommates. So, uh, Germany's, if you want to come up on stage, go ahead and give them a nice welcome round of applause. <laughs> All right, Germany's got here. Yesterday, they've been traveling for a couple of days now. Um, yeah, so uh, this is Steve and his wife Krista. Are we uh, thinking it's going to be a bad idea to let the kids introduce themselves, or think they can do it? Can you tell everybody who this? Can is you tell them your Brown name? Bear. That's Brown Bear. What's your name? Gus. Gus. Okay. And what's your name, buddy? Is it, you want to tell them what their, his name is? Gus oh. Garrick. G- Garrick, okay. And what's your name? What is it? Ruby Claire. Ruby Claire. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, we've got uh, Gus Garrick and Ruby Claire, and you can go ahead and hold on to that. Um, yeah. We have been uh, we've been so thankful for you guys uh, for the prayers that you've been giving to the, Ger- the Germans for all of the food and the house supplies you've been bringing, um, but just just to make their transition easier. So one way, though, that you know some information that can be helpful for us to maybe make your transition a little bit easier. What's a either Chris or Steve' your favorite food or a place you guys like to eat? Well, when we first visited, the, the duck nachos at Brueut. It was a, a revelation. All right. So um, that might have been the, the winning deciding factor of bringing us here. Well, well, Brewery Vivant, that doesn't necessarily seem like a place for kids. So are you saying that another way that this transition can be made helpful is with babysitting? That is an absolutely perfect one. Fantastic. And, so and you're already getting kind of a, a small taste of what that entails. <laughs> we were warning the O'Connells, like, you really don't know what you're asking when you're asking <laughs> us to come stay with you. So. Well, fantastic. So, Duck Nachos and Brewery Vivant um, and babysitting. That's how you can help the transition go a little bit smoother. So. Uh, but really, uh, on behalf of Hillside, welcome. We're so incredibly uh, excited for how God is going to use you here and how you guys are going to form our worshiping life. So, uh, thank you for coming and thank you for blessing us and we can't wait to the journey that God brings us on. So, welcome to Hillside. Thank Everyone you. give a round of applause. take that. All right. They're really not that crazy. I know they've only stayed at our house for one night, but they're really not that crazy. They're good kids. All right, uh, so we're going to continue in our sermon series, um, Beginnings. Uh, And what we've been going through is we've been seeing how God has started a family uh, through Abraham, or Abram, it's interchangeable. And his wife Sarah, or Sarai, which is interchangeable as well, and you'll see that in the the text this morning. Um, But before we start and go further into Abraham's story, I want to tell you a story of my own. So when I was 16 years old, uh, for reasons that you can come ask me after the sermon, uh, I was suspended from high school for about half of a week. And my mom was obviously disappointed. Um, I had just become a Christian, so I was new to faith, new to Christianity, and she thought that it would be a good idea for me to have some good influences in my life. We need to make him a better kid, we need better people in his life. So she decided that she was going to call the church, see what's going on. It just so happened that weekend, there was a conference, and it was called Acquire the Fire I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with this event, Um, it's an evangelical youth rally at uh, arenas and sports stadiums, uh, very much like the Billy Graham conferences or the Billy Graham Graham Crusades, only for youth and a lot more light shows and fog. Um, Now this was, again, I was really a baby to Christianity, Okay, Um, didn't know who God was, was very foreign to me, Um, and this was my first experience with anything that was overtly Christian, uh, again, I very I accepted Jesus into my heart, um, but people were telling me that God would speak to me, that I would feel God, and I just had no idea what that all looked like. Well, in typical large rally event fashion, I was absolutely captivated as the band members came out into the, the space where we were at, and it was like, Really good artists like these were worship concerts. You know, back then, ten years ago, is you know Jeremy Camp and Mercy Me and all of uh, Reliant K and all these huge Christian names. And I was captivated by it, and it was amazing. I thought, this is so cool that they can use their gifts in this kind of way. And then world-renowned speakers in the Christian uh, hemisphere came in, and it was they were awesome, and they, they they infused me with such confidence for why I should follow God in my life. And with each new uh, each new speaker, each new band. Again, I became more captivated. I became more overwhelmed. And whether or not uh, I'm not going to try and guess the genuineness of it, but I felt God. I truly did. For the first time, all these people around me who were saying, "You know, it, you'll feel God one day." That it's just an overwhelming experience when you feel the Holy Spirit enter into your heart. And I can very vividly describe to you the smells of the night, the colors, the people on my left, the people on my right. For the first time in my life, I had felt God, and I was sure of it. Uh, And what I did was I went and bought this Bible, this this exact Bible, ten years ago, at one of the stands, um, with the intention that I was just going to turn my whole life around. I was going to read this thing cover to cover in less than a year, and I was going to completely devote my life to God, completely trust in Him, give Him my everything, and then go into my school and tell them how Jesus had changed my life and how He can change theirs. Um, in fact, I was so hopped up on Jesus and, and this experience that I had had that when we got back down to our hotel room in downtown San Francisco wasn't the best place in the world for this kind of action. But so excited with all my peers and my youth pastor behind me, I opened up the window and I said, "Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord!" out into the public. And even though my youthful zeal was met with expletives from the people that were on the streets, um, just begging me to be quiet at you know 11:30 at night. Um, I couldn't contain myself. I had experienced God, and I wanted everyone else to experience the same God that I just experienced. The conference ends. We get in the car. I start reading the entirety of Matthew and highlighting about every word in line, because that's what you do when you first read the Bible. Um, and I was laying out my evangelical revitalization plan of Truckee High School. Right? I was going to go in, I going to turn that place upside down, baby Christian at 16 years old. Had it all planned out. Well, something happened when I got home. Um, <laughs> turns out people didn't see eye to eye with me on my plan. Um, turns out people had not experienced the same experience that I had. And they weren't as confident in God's plan as I was. Um, and the reality of that just shook me. Um, I was so discouraged by it. And very quickly, um, I gave up on my plan. Uh, gave up on what I thought was God's plan and just let that be that. Now, I'm sure I'm not the only one in this room who's experienced this before, you know, the spiritual mountaintop experience, the spiritual high. Um, and if you've experienced that, you're also familiar with the all-too-dreaded letdown, or, or that whiff of reality that hits you in the face that says everything's not going to be that great all the time. Last week, we talked about Abraham. And Abraham currently is struggling with God and the promise that he has given them, that he will give him a descendant. He will give him a son and make his descendants too numerous to count. And Abraham is struggling with it, and he's saying, God, talk is cheap, you need to show me. I can't just rely on your words anymore, you need to show me. I'm 80, my wife is barren, doesn't seem like this is going to work out for us. And in this really cool, transcendent, powerful, mountaintop experience moment, God says to Abraham, go out and look in the stars. Count the stars, and if you can count them, know that I will multiply your descendants more than this. You'll have more than that. The scripture says that Abraham believed the Lord, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham had experienced this crazy, mountaintop, spiritual experience, uh, probably more profound than mine at 16 years old, but was very, he was, he was confident in God. He trusted him. He went, he, I'm sure he went back home and he said, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll wait however long it takes. I trust God. I believe in him. And then he comes home. And this is what we're going to talk about this morning. What happened... When he came home. Now, before we dive into this, I want to acknowledge something about the story that we're about to engage. Um, It's weird, (laughs) Uh, it's problematic, and it was not a story that I jumped up and down at the opportunity to preach. Um, In fact, uh, whenever I get the chance to preach, I uh, go to Ron at the beginning of the week and I say, hey, you know, what what would you do here? Try and glean some wisdom from him. And after we sat down and we read the scripture together, we both said, well, that's going to be really tough to preach. Um, And it's the story of Sarah and Hagar um, Or Sarai and Hagar Again, it'll be interchangeable Um, And and what we're going to do Is we're just going to read the story at first Just read the whole thing Um, And if you're not familiar with the story Try and enjoy it as much as you can Um, If you are familiar with the story, what I'd ask you to do is to pretend as if you don't know what's about to happen. Just let the narrative wash over you and just, just listen to what's happening. Pay attention to the characters, to the events, and just ask what's going on here. And regardless if you've heard it or not, what I want you to do is try and put on a lens this morning that maybe you're not familiar with or maybe you are familiar with, which is pretend as if you don't know anything about God. You've never experienced God. You've never walked into a church. For some of you, that might be the case. But if it's not, per- try and hit the reset button. What I want you to do is, we read this story, look at how God interacts, and try and find in any way, shape, or form how this story can elicit joy, hope, or confidence in the God that Abraham has experienced. All right, again, it's a weird and it's problematic story, so let's just read through it. Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave woman named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, "'You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me.'" "'Your slave is in your hands,' Abram said. "'Do whatever you think best.'" Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Then the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to shore, and he said, "'Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going?' I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. This is where it gets good if you're a parent. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility towards all of his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son. Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Now I know what most of you are thinking. Um, I wish that one day God could bless me that much. Um, I wish that one day uh, that God would give me the blessing of having a wild donkey of a human being as a child, or perhaps maybe the opportunity to walk back in to a, a, a context in which you're going to be victimized um, and some, maybe some serious baby mama drama. Um, again, this story—it's weird. It's problematic. And it's not outside the realm of possibility to look at it at first glance and think that God is just being cruel to Hagar for no reason whatsoever. Despite all that, I want to suggest that this story actually is a source of great hope for us all this morning. I think that the God who is revealed in this story is one of great love, of great grace, and surprisingly enough, someone who actually champions the cause of the marginalized, champions the cause of the victimized, and champions the cause of those who have been cast out. And if you think I'm off my rocker, let's go through it together, and we'll try and discover why that's true. So again, Abram just comes home, right? He's amped on this promise that God has given him. He's so excited, but again, when you come home and that reality hits you in the face, it's sickening almost, right? It, it, it's heavy. And that's exactly what happens here in the first verse. This weight gets dropped on him. He has just been told he's going to have all these kids, and this is the reality that he comes home to. Now Sarai, Abram's wife had borne him no children. He, he, right after this amazing experience that Abraham had, what he's confronted with is this reality, even though God has promised him a child, and even though he believes him, reality is still that his wife is not pregnant. The promise has been issued, but the question pops back up for Abraham. Can God be trusted? Even though God has made this grand promise, Abram and Sarai are confronted with this question, how long will we wait? But perhaps more profoundly is, is it possible that this promise is not happening? Is it possible that we're not conceiving this child because we haven't done something about it? Is, is it possible that God's promise is dependent on whether or not we take the right action? Is it possible that God has given us the resources that we need, but we're not using them? Right? And this is a question that we ask of God often. We see the promises of Scripture laid out for our lives very clearly, what God wants for our lives, and some of us, through prayer and through other experiences, might actually have a very good idea of what God's will for our lives is. Yet we still get impatient. Yet the question even pops up for us, can God be trusted? And maybe like Abram and Sarai, the reason that we're not feeling, we can probably feel the reason we're not feeling the blessing of God's promise is because we haven't done something about it. It's this incredible tension between how long do I wait versus when is it appropriate to take action? It's the familiar story about the guy who's caught on a roof in a flood, right? He prays for God to save him, and he waits for God, and then a raft comes along. And he says, get in. He says, nope, I'm waiting for God to save me. And he keeps praying, God, save me, save me. And a boat comes along He says, hop in. He says, nope, I'm waiting for God to save me. And he prays, God, save me, save me. And a helicopter drops a ladder right to his location and says, hop on in. We're here to save you. Nope, I'm waiting for God to save me. And then the waters overtake him. He meets God at the gates and he says, why didn't you save me? I waited for you. He goes, what are you talking about? I gave you a raft, a boat, and a helicopter. You just decided not to use them. There's this tension we have. How long do we wait versus when do we take action? And we have this in stuff in our lives like health. When an illness hits, maybe when we have uh, cancer or um, an an injury or some uh, type of disease, we wonder... Do we attack it aggressively or do we pray for a miracle? Do, do we put ourselves through this really difficult ordeal or do we know that maybe this is just God's plan? I, I don't know. Maybe you're struggling with something like Abram and Sarai are, which is infertility. And you're thinking, I want to have a kid of my own flesh and blood. I think that that's God's way. How long do we wait if we're not getting it? And if we're not getting it, is that a sign that maybe God doesn't want us to have kids? Or do we recognize that our modern society has advanced and it's evolved to the point where we have resources that can help you have a child of your own flesh and blood? But do you take action or do you wait? With money, we ask you guys to tithe and we ask you to be generous. But it doesn't change the fact that bills still come. The reality hits you in the face every month. Every month. And so you're asked the question, do I trust in God? Do I wait and see if, if he brings the money? Or, or, or maybe if the bills are stacking up so high, it's, do, I, do I need to take a second job? That might affect time with my family. That might provide a lot of stress on me. But, but I, I need to make sure that I provide for my family. Do I wait or do I trust? Again, this incredible tension. And the tough question, it's a tough question because we don't know if we've actually made the right decision until we've succeeded or failed miserably. Time is truly the only indicator of whether or not we've acted in accordance with God's will. Now we go to Abraham and Sarah. They say, no more waiting. They say, look, God has given us resources to remedy this problem. Uh, they decide that just maybe the reason they don't have a kid is because they're not using the resources in which God has, the, the, the very vessel that he's given them to do that. So this is when they turn to Hagar. Hagar. Genesis 16:2 The Lord has kept me from having children," said Sarah. "Go, go sleep with my slave; perhaps I can build a family through her." Now, Sarai gives permission for Abraham's descendant to come from another woman, but in, the, in the, the language, perhaps you can. You can feel the hopelessness. You can feel the, the pushback. It's almost, if she, it's almost as if she's saying, look, I know we should wait on God for a solution, but he's made things too difficult for us to do that. Uh, because he's prevented me from having kids, I need to now do something that under normal circumstances, maybe I wouldn't. Now, we need to be very careful in our judgment of Sarai and Abram. Uh, we do ourselves a huge disservice if we read this text, and then immediately go to, would, it, were they right or were they wrong? All right. Um, and there's a couple of reasons. First off, in doing this action, God's promise is not voided. Okay, God's promise was to Abraham, not Sarai, not to Hagar. So if Abraham has a son through Hagar, if it's Abraham's heir, the, the, the promise is not voided, God is not completely superseded. Um, And in fact, for all they knew, Hagar was the vessel in which God was going to complete this promise. Now, if you're thinking, Eric, that's a technicality. I'm more worried about the adultery thing. Me too. Um, The reality is is that this would not have been considered adultery in that time. There is a different culture surrounding conception. And in fact, in order to secure a son, what they did would have been considered a legal Practice. There were marriage covenants back then that actually made this a contractual obligation. If a woman could not produce a son, then she had to produce a woman who could produce a son. And I don't want to be too crude, but this is an important reality to understand. Our idea of conception these days is a lot more intimate, it's a lot more personal. Women back then were, again, not to be too crude, but were seen as incubators. And if, you were, if one incubator was better than the other, then it really didn't matter if she was going to be a good mother. It really didn't matter if she was going to be your wife. As long as she could incubate a baby to full, healthy term, that was the most important thing. Um, and obviously, that doesn't sit well. But, and, and even though it's difficult, our condemnation or our criticism um, of them, it should not be that they engage in what we now know as adultery. Sarai and Abram's misstep was that they convinced themselves that they needed to help God out with the promise. The reality is, is that Abram and Sarai didn't fully trust God's promise. They trusted some of it. They believed they'd have a kid, but they did not fully trust. And secondly, their actions proved that they wanted to move ahead of God. They said, we're tired of waiting. I know, God, this is how you want it, but this isn't okay for us. We need to move ahead of you. And here's the thing, and here's why it's difficult, is that even though they didn't trust God, even though they undermined and underestimated him, and even though they moved ahead of him, the plan worked. They knocked it out of the park. Abraham slept with Hagar, and she got pregnant without complications, and he's about to have a descendant, he's about to have an heir, which complicates things, right? But remember, I said the hard part in deciding whether or not you helping God out or not is a good idea is whether or not you failed or succeeded. And Abram and Sarai find out quickly that just maybe they've chosen wrong. Abraham is going to have a descendant, but now the marriage is fractured to the big surprise of all of us here. Um, When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Again, comes to no surprise, but they realize, shoot, this was a mistake. Maybe we should have waited on God. Yeah, now we have the descendant, we have our promise, but this headache that we've got, it's a little bit too much to stomach, and it's a little bit too difficult to, to, to go along with. And so what happens next is predictable in light of our broken and human condition. Is she goes to Abraham, and says, I've got a problem. He says, look, I'm sorry, do whatever you want with her. And Sarai does what someone would do in this case when they're hurt, is she mistreats her. Now, we don't know exactly what happened, but it was enough for Hagar to say, enough. I'm not doing this anymore, I'm leaving. So she packs up her stuff, and she leaves. And this uh, this comes to a turning point in the story. But before we do that, before we go to that turning point, I want to address something. How does this story so far, how does this text help us answer the question, what do we do now? You've been sitting here wondering, "I'm yeah, perfect. I'm in a situation right now where I have to wait for God or take action. Really hoping that this will help me." Bad news: I have no idea. <laughs> this text right here it does not help us make a decision. Um, we see from the story that they made a mistake but it succeeded. Their mistake doesn't necessarily mean that you always have to wait for God. There's plenty of other places in Scripture where action is required. Just because it didn't work for them doesn't mean that if you leave this place and get hit by a car or your car gets in an accident that you shouldn't go to the hospital or a car maintenance place. It's not going to magically heal itself. The text does not help us make an initial decision. Maybe we learn that it's not a bad thing to wait on God, and then sometimes it may be preferable. So while it may not help us with our practical decisions, I think what this story does and what it serves as is it shows us that we need to be confident when we decide that we want to take action because Hagar and Ishmael and this whole mess represents the consequences of what it looks like to move ahead of God. And really what we see is Hagar represents this dead-endedness, this what what do we do now? Now we have a bigger mess on our hands. She represents what it looks like, again, to move ahead of God. We need to look at Hagar and realize that just because we might have the resources, just because we might have the abilities to help God out, does not mean that that is a good solution or the best solution by any means. Um Abram and Sarai, they looked at Hagar, and what they did was they saw a temptation to trust in their own abilities, to trust in their own work, to say, we don't necessarily need God for everything. We can take care of this part. And Hagar and Ishmael, what they do is they just serve as this visible evidence that you can move ahead of God, and things might work out for a short period of time. But ultimately, what happens, it is, it's an alternative to God's promise. And a cheap one at that. It's not as great as God planned it to be. It's still a problem. So, and later on in Galatians 4, Apostle Paul notices this much. He says that Hagar represents what it looks like to trust in our own capacity rather than waiting on God's promise. Now, what it looks like to wait on God's promise is going to look different for you than it is for you. How you make that decision, it all depends on the situation you're in. It depends on what God is calling you to. So unfortunately, the story does not help us make this decision today. So where's the good news? (laughs) Just sat here and said everything I said really amounted to me saying, good luck. Keep doing what you're doing, just don't screw it up. (laughs) Um, And on top of that, we've got this homeless pregnant mother wandering the desert, and this couple in their 80s who are barren and who have most likely fractured their marriage and uh, who are waiting on this promise that they can't see coming at all. Where's the love, the joy, the grace, the God that champions the cause of the marginalized that I talked about earlier? Well, it's what happens after all of this. It's what, it's what happens when God interacts with Hagar in the desert. Again, Hagar is this maligned, homeless, pregnant mother in the middle of the Middle Eastern desert. Okay, She, it, it is, in terms of social status, the only way it could be worse for her is, is if she had leprosy. But the reality is, is that Hagar, right now, is a perfect candidate to be forgotten by the world. To be just another Egyptian slave woman. But the good news is, is that's not how God sees her. What happens in uh, Genesis 16, 7 through 8, says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. Found That's important for us to pay attention to. He didn't stumble upon. It wasn't an accidental thing. God went out and looked for Hagar, and he found her, and this is what he says. He says, Hagar. Now, again, we know her name, but how many Egyptian slave women women have gone through the Bible and we don't know their name? How many people in our Christian faith have championed our cause who have formed what we believe today and we don't know their name? God says, that's not good enough. I want you to remember this Egyptian slave woman who's out in the desert and has no hope. Her name is Hagar, slave of Sarai. Where have you come from and where are you going? He's intimately interested in what's going on in her life. And we see here that God never fails to see what's going on, and that he's vitally interested in everything that touches his creation. Okay, We can try and run away from things, we can try and run away from God, but we cannot elude him and his love for us. When the world wants to forget about Hagar, God goes looking. And the good news is that if you feel like a Hagar this morning, if you feel like if, if, that you've been forgotten about, if you feel like you've been a victim of something that you couldn't control and you're worthless or you feel useless because of it, if you feel like you're a perfect candidate to be forgotten, know that God looks for you. He finds you. He calls you by name. But that's not enough. Hagar answers God and says, I'm running away. And God, the one who seeks Hagar out, not only finds her at her lowest, but he offers her a promise. He says, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. And we need to pause for a second and recognize how amazing this is. Okay, God not only searches out and finds the footmark of society, but he gives her this promise in such a way where he recognizes, I know your pain. I know that you're a slave of Abram and Sarai. And I know that they used you to undermine and underestimate me. I know that they used you to go ahead of my plans." And you can imagine as they're sitting together and as they're living together the night that Abraham had that mountaintop spiritual experience that he came home to his wife and he said, you're never going to believe it. You know all these problems we've been having, with all these doubts that we've been having. I said it to God in a very honest way and he said, Abraham, go out of your tent. And I looked at the stars and he said, count all of them. And he says, if you can count all of them, that will be your descendants. And in fact, he said, I will increase your descendants so much that they'll be too numerous to count. And as he's expressing that excitement and getting, you can imagine Hagar over here going, that would be really nice. It would be nice if God would bless me like that. And so what we see God doing in this moment is saying to Hagar, you are just as important to me as Abraham is, and don't you ever forget it. Everyone else wants to forget about you, but I will look for you. I will call you by name, and I will bless you as much as the blessed of all of my creation. What we can take from this is that God sees who we are. He cares for us as we are. We are no less important to him as Abraham or Hagar. He loves every single person in his creation. And that is fantastic news. This first promise is great. Second promise, not so much. Angel of the Lord said to her, You are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. Just name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard of your misery. All good. He'll be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility towards all of his brothers. I can't imagine one parent in this room says, that's good news. To have a son be like this, to have a kid be like this. But look at Hagar's reaction. She says, you are the God who sees me. I think she had every right to say, what the heck? Why does my son have to be a jerk? You've seen all of this stuff that's been happening in my life. You're blessing me. You're letting it come. Why stop at my son's personality? I'm going to have to deal with this for the rest of my life. Couldn't we do something a little bit different? Like make him a nice person. But she doesn't say that. In fact, she accepts the blessing. And she receives it with favor. Then she goes back to camp. She has the son. They name it Ishmael. And it's like as if nothing ever happened why? <laughs> why in the world is this comforting? Why in the world is this acceptable to Hagar? After she's been completely victimized, and after she has been given this ridiculous promise, why is it acceptable to her? I think it's because that Hagar knows that they have made a huge mess of this situation. I think that Hagar knows that she, whether willingly or not, took part of a plan that Miss or that underestimated and undermined the promise of God. I think that she knows as she wanders the desert, most likely she will die or the child will die in her womb to dehydration alone. I think that she knows that as an Egyptian slave woman, life is not going to be sunshine and rainbows from this point. I think that she knows just how incredibly forgetful she is in this world. But God showers her with blessing. And promise and assures her that while your son might be a handful at times, I'm always going to be with him. Your son might find himself in a situation like you're in right now. And you know what? It's probably going to be his fault. (laughs) But I will never forget about him. Just as I have never forgotten about you. Just like Abraham, I'm going to keep my promises to him. I'm going to make his descendants great. Yeah, of course, this was not how the plan was supposed to go. But you moved ahead of me. You made your decision. But that's not ever going to change my love for you or for your son. It's my creation. I'm not just going to cast them away. I'm not just going to let them be destroyed. If you're a Hagar this morning, know that God won't forget you. But if you're a parent to an Ishmael a wild donkey of a human being for a child, know that God's not done with them yet and God will never forget about them. God will always keep them in his loving arms. God never leaves nor forsakes his creation no matter how flawed they are, no matter how annoying they may be, no matter how donkey-esque they might be. God never forgets about us. God never lets us be destroyed by the horrible decisions that we might make, the ways that we move ahead of him. And I think that this is incredibly great news. What this story serves as is this case study, this illustration for what happens when we move ahead of God. When we move ahead of God, pain comes, marriages are hurt, victims are created, peace escapes us, among other things. Moving ahead of God, we find, is an unsustainable thing. But the really, really good news this morning is that God sustains our unsustainable actions. When we move ahead of God, when we say, I know better, God says, no you don't, but I'm still going to take care of you. I'm still going to love you. I'm not going to let you be destroyed. Just like Hagar in the desert, God sees us, he knows us, he loves us. And as we move forward into this story, and as we see the things that happen, Abraham and Sarai are still going to mess up. Hagar and Ishmael are still going to mess up. But you know what? A son's going to come. Isaac is going to come. Ishmael is going to be taken care of. Hagar is going to be taken care of. Everyone is going to be taken care of. In the midst of all of this human brokenness, God does not let them be destroyed by it. And because God is God, he will keep his promise. He will continue to bless. When we try and destroy ourselves, God will not let us be destroyed. He will sustain us. When we are faithless, God is faithful. And just like last week, he said, I will let my son die. I will will die before I am faithless. So as we leave this morning, I want to encourage you to do these things. Wait on and trust in God. Wait on and trust in God. He knows what he's doing. And our impatience pales in comparison to God's sovereignty and his great love for us. Trust in God, wait when you need to wait, and don't move ahead of God. If you need to take action, be certain that that's what God wants you to do, and don't move ahead of Him. But if you do, okay, know that when we are faithless, God is faithful. And because of that, even more so, He deserves our trust, He deserves our patience, and He deserves our wholehearted devotion to Him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for complicated and messy stories that you give us. We thank you that in the worst situations, God, you're still able to produce hope. You're still able to give us something to look forward to, something to find life in. God, we are sinful and broken creatures, and sometimes all we know is destruction. Sometimes all we know is how to destroy our lives, to 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 undermine and underestimate you. God, give us the strength, the courage, and the boldness to to trust in you, to wait on you, and to be blessed by you. But God, we thank you that even when we don't do that, even when we're we're incapable, when we don't have the strength, God, that you continue to sustain us. We thank you, God, that you sent your Son to die for us, knowing that we're not going to be able to keep our end of the bargain. Would that be a source of great joy for us this morning? Would it sustain us? as we go from this place. It's your name we pray. Amen. Please stand receive God's parting word of blessing. Lord, bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, turn his face to you and give you peace. Go in peace.